0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Jernardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Who's Pulling Your Strings? Buddha Gossa. Nobody likes to be pushed around. We like to think that when we do things, it's because we chose to do them, and that we could have chosen otherwise. If I speed up while walking, it's because I've decided to go faster. If I look down as I go, it's because I want to watch my step. And if, without moving at all, I consciously think about a problem or task, even one I'd prefer not to be thinking about, isn't this too something that I am doing myself? It seems natural, even inevitable, to think of this in terms of control. It's like a flying drone, whose movements are controlled from the ground by a pilot, except that here the thing doing the controlling and the thing being controlled are both inside one person. Self-control is just a more intimate version of the causal relationship involved in remote control. For the Buddhist philosopher Buddha Gosa, however, this would be a huge mistake. He thinks that the whole point of the Buddha's refusal to acknowledge the self, to allow that there is anything that can be called I, is precisely a denial of the controller self. This is a new perspective within the tradition. Earlier Buddhists had understood the theory of no-self, to say that the person is just a stream or heap of individual experiences and feelings. Buddha instead insists that the doctrine of no-self is about our capacity for agency. Although he was born in India, and by all accounts had a thorough education in the various Indian philosophical systems, Buddha decided that the true Buddhist teachings were best preserved in the island of Sri Lanka. There, the teachings were still recorded and studied in the actual language of the Buddha, Pali, rather than the language of elite discourse, Sanskrit. So, Buddha Gosa traveled to the great monastery of Anuradapura and there embarked on an enormously thorough study of the various parts of the Buddhist canon, both the Nikaya and Abhidharma treatises. He studied all the various commentaries that had been written over centuries by a series of talented Sinhala philosophers. So impressed were the monks that they charged Buddhaghosa with the task of writing definitive explanations that would organize and order the teachings. With a team of assistants and apprentices, he did just that, in a monumental project of textual production. For good measure, he also composed an independent treatise called The Path of Purification, which would both present the doctrine in a systematic fashion and serve as a training manual for aspirants on the Buddhist path. It would seem then that Budagosa was a pretty willful and motivated individual. Yet, when it came to describing what it means to be willful and motivated, he had no truck with the idea that each of us is or has a self, an origin of willed directives. A deeply entrenched model of the self encourages us to think of it along the lines of a charioteer who controls his horses from the chariot's platform. Budagosa finds in this picture of human agency only metaphysical magic. Time and again, he rejects the idea that there is something inside which controls each of our bodily movements, or the psychological processes that go on within us. The self of the sectarians, he likes to say, just does not exist. The best way to counter the hold a metaphor has on the imagination is to replace it with another one. To combat the analogy of the charioteer, he compares the human being to a mechanical doll whose limbs, torso, and head are held together by strings. He writes, Just as a mechanical doll is empty, soulless, and undirected, and while it walks and stands merely through the combination of strings and wood, yet it seems as if it had direction and occupation, so too this minded body is empty, soulless, and undirected, and while it walks and stands merely through the combination of the two together, yet it seems as if it had direction and occupation. Buddha is living dangerously here, deploying a metaphor that can easily work against him. If we are just marionettes, surely there must be someone pulling our strings. Who could that someone be other than a divine agency, a being with its hands on the control units of each and every one of us? That is, in fact, exactly a picture of human agency which was encouraged by a thinker we've already encountered in this podcast series, Krishna, as depicted in the Bhagavad Gita. O Arjuna, Krishna states, the Lord resides in the heart area of all beings, making every being revolve through his magical power as if they were mounted on a machine. The later commentator, Madhusudana Sarasvati, would identify the machine in question as our friend the marionette. What Krishna meant to say, he explains, is that the Lord is just like a magician who causes completely non independent wooden human forms to revolve, seated on a machine, and so on moved by a rope. But it can't possibly be Buddhagosa's view that human beings, or minded bodies, as the Buddhists prefer to call us, are automata whose movements are controlled from the outside. Not just because he doesn't believe in the existence of a divine agency, though he certainly doesn't, nor only because in the Nikaya, the Buddha himself is reported as saying that there is what he calls self-doing in the performance of the actions of stepping forward or back, More fundamentally, it is because of the very nature of ethics in the Buddhist view. For it is central to the Buddhist understanding of ethics that the moral value of an action is constrained by the intention with which that action is performed. If actions were merely the result of some divine puppet master, then nobody should be praised or blamed on the basis of their intentions, as the intentions would have no causal role in what they do. So, in introducing the risky metaphor of the marionette, Buddha Gosa simply wants to push back against the insidious grip of the alternative charioteer metaphor, which leads us into thinking that there must be some inner controller. If Buddha Gosa lived today, perhaps he would be tempted to compare humans to those self-driving cars that we are promised will soon populate our streets. Like a self-driving car, the human being is a complex mechanism in which there are a variety of instruments some have the job of detecting what is in the environment, some monitor the functioning of the mechanism itself, still others search for objectives or destinations and calculate the best ways of achieving them. That's the difference between a self-driving car and a remote-controlled drone, whose operator is external to it, and also the difference between a self-driving car and an ordinary car, or a chariot for that matter, which is like a drone whose operator happens to be on board. Buddha Gosa develops his alternative metaphor by arguing that all consciousness is already active, that each and every conscious mental state is an expression of agency. He does this by turning a more ancient Buddhist description of the mind on its head. In that older description, the flow of mental life was compared to a rope made of many interwoven strands. One strand is the series of sensory encounters or perceptions one has had and is having, Another strand is a series of feelings and affective reactions, another strand is made up of habits and dispositions, and still another includes our concepts. All these are woven together with a final strand made up of the physical states of the human body. Together, they produce a human being, a rope, stretched across time. Within this complex, there appear moments of intention and choice, which provide the whole rope with agency and direction. Since this picture was drawn by Buddhists, it gives no place to a unitary inner self, but it still suggests that control emanates from discrete elements within the person, namely the volitions that are woven into that person. Instead, Buddhaghosa insists that control and activity are built into every single moment of conscious experience. Our awareness is built up out of many activities, which together produce the mindedness that belongs to the complex-minded body, the human being. Gosā offers a vivid simile, asking us to imagine an odd couple consisting of someone who is blind, but can walk, and a sighted but lame person sitting on that first person's shoulders. His point is that each deliberate action, such as moving in a certain direction, is the joint product of several capacities working together. Conscious awareness itself is no passive response to the environment, but the activity of the mind's bending itself onto the world. There is an interplay between mind and body, and between minded body and worldly environment. Buddha Gosa identifies a number of different kinds of activities that make up human experience. There is awareness, which brings us into touch with our environment in a way we are not when we are asleep. We are also able to reach out or direct attention to specific objects, which is what gives thought an object a goal or an orientation. Once something comes to our specific attention, we can evaluate it, either by judging it as worth pursuing or avoiding, or by classifying it under a certain category. For buddhaghosa, being minded is being attentive, as we direct ourselves towards certain things and not others. Attention is like a window frame. It sets a boundary to what we see, though we can also focus on certain features of the things perceived through that frame. So, experience is not a matter of passively being affected, but of engaging with the environment. Nor is this active engagement the job of just one part or power of the mind, the one that is in charge. We need no self to serve as a source of motivation, intention, evaluation, or awareness, controlling things from the top down. All these features were already present in the various components of mental activity, built into it from the ground up. As so often in philosophy, Buddhaghosa's account seems to work better for some examples than for others. What he is saying sounds pretty convincing if you think about reading a book. You decide to read up on Buddhism, go to the library, find a relevant volume, sit down, and attend to a given sentence on a given page. You are living the life of the mind, and it is a life full of activity. But aren't there other cases where our mental life does seem to be passive, at the mercy of the world outside? A loud noise may force itself upon your attention, as when a car backfires just outside the library, making you look up from your engrossing book. Pain would be another example. Perhaps you're on a meditative walk through the forest and then step on a thorn. If active attention is involved here, it would seem to come in only secondarily. Apparently, you involuntarily become aware of noise or pain, and only then actively direct your attention towards it, thinking, what was that noise, or boy, that hurt. But Gosa denies this. He thinks that the mind already must be actively involved if we are to become aware of the distracting noise or stabbing pain. In support of this, he offers three vivid analogies. In the first, we are asked to imagine a man asleep under a mango tree who is woken up by the sound of a falling mango. The man grabs the mango, gives it a squeeze, smells it, and finally eats it. The second analogy is to a king, contentedly sitting inside his palace. There's a knock at the palace gate. A villager has come bearing a gift. The doorkeeper is deaf and doesn't hear the knock, but the king's attendant does, and instructs the doorkeeper to open the gate, thereby permitting the gift to reach the king. The third analogy likens the unperturbed mind to a spider happily nestled in the center of its web. An insect comes into contact with the web, sending vibrations through to the center. On detecting these vibrations, the spider shoots off towards its prey, ready to suck out the insect's juices. What each of these similes is meant to illustrate is that there is quite a lot of mental activity going on backstage, as it were, with various functions cooperating to bring something to our attention. The man sees the mango, but only because he heard it first. This represents the fact that awareness often requires coordination between the different senses. Similarly, The villager could not just walk into the palace, because an instruction needs to be sent to open the gates, which can happen only once the king's attendant has heard the knocking and instructed the doors to be opened. In this analogy, consciousness is compared with the king's receiving and enjoying the gift, and sophisticated mental activity has unfolded in the background of conscious awareness. In the third simile, it looks as if the web is exploited twice, First, to transmit the quiver from the insect's impact along the web to the spider, and again to transport the spider out to where the insect is. What this case suggests, then, is that a single sense modality can do double duty, first to sound a subliminal alert that a certain stimulus is present, and second, to reach out to that stimulus in conscious awareness. All this helps Buddhaghosa to a major revision of ancient Buddhist theory. Traditionally, it was held that there are six sense faculties, not five. As well as the ones we are familiar with, namely sight, taste, touch, smell, and hearing, there is a faculty called mind, whose job is to perceive what is going on in our heads. Now, every sense faculty has its own special domain of objects, as sight, for instance, is tasked with seeing colors. So if the mind is a sixth faculty, there must be inner mental objects for it to grasp. Earlier Buddhists also thought that each distinct sense faculty has its own physical basis, like the eye in the case of vision. Extending this to the mind, they assumed that there must be a physical basis for the sixth sense, called the heart base. It's a memorable term, evoking as it does the headquarters of a group of militant cardiologists, but Buddhaghosa is nonetheless going to offer a wholesale revision of the theory. In keeping with his sophisticated and nuanced approach to mental activity, he argues that the word mind cannot be reduced to an additional sense faculty. Rather, it refers to a range of different kinds of function associated with sensory perception, in fact, four types in all. The first role of mind is like that of the king's attendant in the story about the gift from the villager. Mental activity is required to get the senses to orient themselves towards something, as when you turn back from a loud noise to focus on your book again, This is analogous to the attendant's command that the palace doors be open. Such orientation need not be connected to vision, of course. You could stop watching television to listen to what your spouse is saying, for example, though we do not recommend the reverse procedure. Or you could notice the sound of a falling mango. When it plays this role, the mind is not a distinct sixth kind of perception, but spans across all five senses, being embedded in their normal functioning. The same goes for the remaining functions buddha assigns to the mind which are three stages in the sequence of sensory perception first there is the basic receiving of a sensory stimulus into perception which as yet involves no attempts to classify or if you will describe what is being sensed here we may be reminded of dignaga's idea of perceptions that have not yet received the constructions placed on them at the level of concepts second there is the stage of classification this thing I am seeing is oval in shape or is a mango. And there's one further role for mind to play. Buddhaghosa's third stage of perception looks rather like the modern psychologist's notion of working memory. The mind can, as he says, run across the process perceptions from the various senses, putting them in order so that we can have a unified awareness in consciousness. In this last capacity, Buddhaghosa's mind is more like a workspace than an inner sixth sense this is a formidably sophisticated account concerning the workings of the mind. Given the proliferation of distinctions, the compelling analogies and examples, and the fierce critique of rival views, you might get the impression that Buddha wouldn't be out of place in a modern-day analytic philosophy department. And indeed, he would no doubt hold his own just fine in such an environment. Nonetheless, before closing, we should point out that, as always in the Indian tradition, such technical theories were advanced with an eye on questions about how to live and how to be liberated. We mentioned at the outset that some account of motivation was needed in order to preserve our intuitions concerning moral praise and blame, and there's a further important ethical implication of Buddha Buddhaghosa's philosophy of mind. His account could have emerged through reflection on the workings of his own mind, but we can direct our notice to other people, just as well as library books or mangoes. Of course, for Buddhagosa, those other people have no selves, but that does not make them unworthy of our attention. To the contrary, each human is a unique complex of mental and bodily activities with its own internal interactions and characteristics. According to Buddhaghosa, coming to understand this should lead to the development of empathy, where one conscious creature focuses its attention on another and becomes aware of that other's particular traits and states of mind. We suggest trying this at home, and in fact in society at large. What is a flourishing community apart from humans empathizing with one another, quite literally keeping each other in mind as they symbiotically interact with a common environment? This aspect of Buddhaghosa's thought, along with his philosophy as a whole, was dispersed widely throughout the world of Theravada Buddhism, which today encompasses not just Sri Lanka, but a good part of South and Southeast Asia too. His views have thus helped to shape ideas about human nature and human community in a vast sector of the global population. It's a story we won't be attempting to tell in this podcast series, at least not in any detail. In fact, our tour through Indian thought is slowly coming to an end. It will conclude with a look at several broader issues, such as philosophy of animals in ancient India and the possibility of influence between ancient European and ancient Indian thought. Next time, we'll kick off this series of episodes on more general topics by looking at a theme that you will probably readily associate with Indian culture, though not necessarily with philosophy, the ritual practices known as Tantra. As we'll see, those practices span the divide between the Vedic schools, Buddhism, and Jainism, much as Buddha Gosa's mind spans the divide between sight, hearing, and the other senses. So make it your mantra to join us for the next episode of the History of Philosophy in India.